Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Welcome to the Press Row. Behind the scenes stories from the world of sports media. Press Row. Inside and interviews from around the sports world. Now, here's your host, Shona Siegel. Shona here, back in the press row. It's been a while. Lots going on. And uh, as I've mentioned before, I've taken a bit of a U-turn, if you will, outside of the world of sports into the world of entertainment. Talking to someone today who I've wanted to talk to for a very long time. Long-time TV writer, producer, and uh, Torontonian. His name is Leonard Dick. Lost, House, The Good Wife. I really hope you uh, sit back and enjoy learning about his history, how he got into the business, and, and more on what's happening in the world of TV as they're in a awful strike right now with the writers. So sit back, relax. Here's Leonard Dick in the press row. Welcome back in the press row. Jonas Siegel here in a awesome sunny afternoon here in Seattle. It's May. We don't usually get sun in May. We're being spoiled, which scares the hell out of me for June because you don't usually get two. And I'm hoping that the fact we've had some sunshine here isn't going to ruin it for June. I am super stoked. I've been chasing today's guest for a long time, well over a year. Um, Because as you all know, two of my biggest loves are sports and the other is entertainment. And we're going to cross streams, Ghostbusters reference which you're not supposed to do into the world of entertainment and talk TV with a former Torontonian. He's worked on a few of my favorite TV shows, including House, Lost, and The Good Wife. And I've got so many questions about that. He is Leonard Dick, and he is joining us from somewhere in and around Beverly Hills, LA, California. Leonard, how are you? I'm doing well, thank you. And Jonah, I am pleased to report that it's cloudy here. We apparently have sent the sun north, so you're welcome on behalf thank of you. the citizens of Los Angeles. Well, as uh, as someone who is a writer, I have to virtually smack you on the hand because, Leonard, your Wikipedia page sucks. There, there's really not a whole lot there, except for the fact that I can tell that not only did you attend Upper Canada College, good boy, you were also <laughs> elected head of the Howard House, which everybody should know, right? Like that's very important information. Uh, there, there's not a ton on your Wikipedia page. Uh, there are people, I will say this, there are people who uh, maintain their Wikipedia pages. I am in the camp that it's cool to be analog. <laughs> so let, you know, it's funny, I didn't even know I had a Wikipedia page. Uh, apparently it was started by some of the uh, early fans of Lost. Yes. And I, I, I was just, I, was, I couldn't believe I had one. And then there were these people out there who keep adding to it, but apparently uh, they got tired of it. So uh, I sit back and observe. And yes, it, it is incomplete, a little dated, uh, but it, it is still out there in the ether. Well, it's interesting here because it says you went to UCC. Can we confirm that? That is confirmed. Yes. It doesn't mention the historic tenure that you had at Camp Timberlane. So that's an omission. <laughs> <laughs> it, uh, it doesn't, it says that you, I don't know what this means. You served on the board of stewards at UCC. That's, that's the UCC, ver, that's UCC version of the student council. Oh, okay. Uh, you know, it, 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 I'd like to tell you that it's it was top hat and morning coats and we carried cricket bats. We did have cricket bats, uh, well, the cricket team, 
but it was it was the student council. It was you're appointed by the principal and the and the teachers. Let's just leave that there. Um, yes. <laughs> he then graduated from Harvard University with both an M, both a BA and an MBA. Good for you. Thank so the you. the uh, the upper Canada degree served you very very well. How, how does somebody go from UCC to Harvard, both with a BA and an MBA, to television? Uh, well, the the story uh, part part of the story that, that will actually muddy this a little more is that uh, I went from UCC to Harvard. I did uh, my undergrad and I majored in government or political science as other schools call it. Then I spent two years at uh, working on Wall Street uh, at Morgan Stanley in, in investment banking. Uh, and then I, I, because I had no idea what I wanted to do, I went to business school, get an MBA because in the world we grew up in, that's credible. It's all about what the mothers can tell their, their Yenta friends that their kids are doing. Uh -huh. So I went to business school, but when I got to business school, ironically, it's what made me realize what I wanted to do, which was do something creative. So a little bit of background, I was the kid who was always in the plays at camp and in high school. And uh, even in college, I was, I was in a, a theater group for, for, for three years. Uh, I wanted to do something uh, in the entertainment world, but growing up like a middle, a middle class kid in Toronto, it's just not on your radar. And so it wasn't until I got to Harvard Business School when I was looking at the alumni database and I couldn't believe how many alumni were working in the entertainment business, particularly in what uh, I at the time thought were creative jobs. Turns out they weren't as creative, but it was a little bit of a, a light bulb moment that, oh, my God, I could actually do this. So um, I, I did spend a summer, had a summer internship at Cineplex Odeon of Blessed Memory, which was run by Garth Drabinsky at the time who I thought was just a, a genius until it turns out he did things that were a little uh, to the left of being a genius and right. got himself in legal trouble. Uh, and then coming out here, uh, then graduating from business school, while well, uh, a lot of my classmates went into consulting and investment banking and private equity, I was able to get a job at Disney uh, as a finance executive. It was my foot in the door. Then I, uh, I knew I wanted to do something creative. And then for fun, I took a sitcom writing class at UCLA Extension School. It's like taking an adult education class uh, to put it in Toronto, like at Seneca College or any of your local community colleges. And then uh, I had this moment, I had this light, another light bulb moment. I said, this is what I want to do. So I ended up leaving my job at Disney and setting, uh, setting down the very insecure path of trying to be a TV writer. And you started that at Mad TV, is that right? Uh, well, there was actually a job before Mad TV. I worked on this. My first job was on a sketch comedy show, a syndicated sketch comedy show called The News, N-E-W-Z, or if you're north of the border, N-E-W-Z. <laughs> and you know it had to be funny because it was news spelt with a Z slash Z. And what happened there, low rated show, and it ended up being canceled when they discovered that the uh, executive producer, one of the executive producers had embezzled half a million dollars. This was my first my first experience in, in, in working on a TV show in Hollywood. Hang on, is it bad that I say that? Given your experience at Cineplex, you were an expert in that. Sorry, <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> uh, I think the difference is the guy who who uh, did the absconding here wasn't the visionary that the Cineplex leaders were. Allegedly, um, allegedly. Oh, and by the way, but here's what the, they did have in common. This apparently was the second time that guy had done that. Nice. So I went from credited writer to creditor. I was now on a class action suit where they sued the show and because the writers hadn't been paid for a few weeks, 
the actress hadn't been paid for months. And that was that. And so I was out of a job. And then a few months later, I was able to land on the first season of Mad TV, which was Fox's um, answer to Saturday Night Live. Uh, so that was my first network, um, full-fledged network show. And it got me to the Writers Guild of America. Uh, and then uh, I was off and running. Uh, I was destined for greatness. And then uh, a few months later, I got fired. Uh, because as happened, as very common in, in, in new TV shows, the show had a very rocky first season, uh, both creatively from a management perspective. And what do you do when a show's having a tough time? You fire the writer. So half the writing staff got axed. Uh, and so again, uh, I was out of a job, this time with a two-month-old baby at home. Nice. Very nice. I timed it perfectly. Uh -huh, perfectly. Yeah. <laughs> Then you're gonna get to, then you get to learn the the most important life lesson and favorite line of all time, which is these dishes aren't gonna wash themselves. Oh, that's right. Yes, <laughs> or or uh, honey, I can't have another night eating Alpo. That's right. Uh, but I was fortunate. <laughs> uh, I ended up getting a, my very first sitcom job on the very sweet show Sister Sister which uh, is one of these shows that is now continuing to play and younger generations are discovering it. And that ended up being a great experience. I worked with some really talented people, including uh, the writer Terrence Winter, whom I know as Terry Winter, who created, who wrote for The Sopranos, created Boardwalk Empire. Uh, he just recently ran Tulsa King, uh, a terrific writer. Two of us on this little suite, we're the two junior writers on this little suite family show uh so it was a that was my first uh that was my introduction into uh the sitcom world and the writer you know, the world of the writer's room uh and then i spent a couple of years in, in the half hour world and then i pivoted into a one hour drama so your your pivot into drama you didn't just you know according to what i'm seeing on imdb you had some you know i, I think what is probably pretty typical and that is a bunch of different shows from 95 to 2002-ish. Yeah. Maybe a little bit later. And then this tiny little show in 2005 comes along. Yes. Called so, Lost. Well, yeah. So so the, the thing, IMDb is a, an incomplete picture for, for most creatives. You know, I would liken it to... When you're looking at your uh, uh, your Google map or your Apple map, and you're looking at you know, way of, you, you see the cities, you see, okay, here's DC, here's Boston, here's Pittsburgh, but what you don't see are the little roads. And so there were a lot of little roads. Uh, I didn't just go from here to here. Uh, like for example, my pivot into one hour drama came from, I wrote an original one hour pilot that I was fortunate to sell. Uh, it was an autobiographical pilot about my years at UCC. It was actually filmed. It did not get picked up to series, but that launched me into the world of one hour drama. And so I worked on a couple of, of, of shows uh, that most, a couple of them really didn't go very long. And then I was fortunate enough, uh, based on that script, uh, I was able to get hired on Lost. Uh, and I joined in the middle of the first season. And as you're writing these shows, are you learning along the way? Like, are you picking up tricks of the trade, so to speak? Are, are, One thousand percent. The the great thing about being a a, a TV writer, um, 
there actually there are many things, but one of the things just in terms of uh, of the learning curve is as you work on different shows, you learn from the people both you're working for. You know the the term you probably you're probably familiar with is the showrunner, literally mm -hmm. the person running the show, but also your fellow writers. Uh, and you can learn. Uh, and the beauty of working on so many shows is, uh, especially canceled shows. Like I've worked on a slew of canceled shows, as most writers have. But I've worked with fantastic people. I'll give you one example. I worked on this half-hour show um, that lasted five episodes called My Guide to Becoming a Rockstar. It was on the WB, which was the predecessor to the CW. And the show it didn't do very well, but the show was run by John Regi, who had run um, the Larry Sanders show. And he's now part of that whole Tina Fey camp, 30 Rock. Where no. John is terrific. He's He is so talented. He's such a great showrunner. I learned a ton from him. And then um, on Lost, I learned from Carlton Cuse and, and Damon Lindelof. And, you know, I, I learned one thing from Damon uh, and Carlton that I use all the time. And that I, I've actually discovered that other people now on other shows quote me. And I have to say, no, that's not me. It's, I learned <laughs> that from Damon Carlton, which is what is the last thing the audience is expecting? Because, you know, you break a story, they're, they're, they're familiar paths. And then you what you want to do is find left turns in a story. And then... From 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 Robert King uh, and Michelle King, who ran The Good Wife, I I learned that, for example, this is this sounds so simple. If you if you're familiar with the show, you don't need to show the jury verdict. It's it's superfluous. It's redundant. Like once Kalinda finds that piece of evidence, or uh, or Alicia gets that gets the 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 defendant to tell the truth, it's over. You don't need to show, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached the verdict? Get to the get to the fun stuff. Get to the relationship stuff. Get to the office politics. So I've been able to, to, to put together a, all these different experiences um, and it informs like the original stuff I create. Uh, I'm able to draw on all these different uh, ways of thinking. And sometimes I'll say to myself, this, uh, this is great. Ro Robert's way is great, but it doesn't work for this, this pilot. Or maybe in another one, I'll say Robert's way is great. It can really help me here. But you know, the way Damon thinks might uh, inform me a little more with this project. So that's the beauty of having worked on so many good shows with good people. So when you show up for Lost, where was it in the process? Okay. So Lost, like many uh, first-year shows, it had a bit of a bumpy ride the first year. Creatively, it was great, but for a variety of reasons, I, you know, it, I'll take a step back. There, there's, a, there's a joke that all shows should skip the first year and go directly to the second year. Uh, you know, the pressures of creating a TV show... Uh, you know, you spend all this time on the pilot, you spend months on the pilot, honing the script, getting notes, doing rewrites, then you get your order, then you're casting. And then they they say you, you, you film your pilot, you cut your pilot and they say, great, congratulations. Now go give us 12 or 22 more of these. Uh, do Turn out a new one every eight days. Oh, and you only get half the budget that you had for your pilot. So there, there had been a writer turnover uh, in in uh, halfway through loss, and so I was hired um, with a couple other writers uh, as replacement writers in the middle of the first season, and I was fortunate to hit the ground sprinting like Usain Bolt. Uh, see, I'm, I'm I'm crossing the streams uh -huh. here. Not like uh, Ben Johnson, of course. Yeah, the show the show had already um, gotten notice. Uh, and so I was on, I, I really was on a, a speeding uh, bullet train that was doing just fine creatively. And so I joined in the middle of the first season and I spent uh, the rest of the first season there. And, and I was also 
So my, the first episode I was a part of was the episode called um, In Translation, which uh, for those who remember the show Lost, uh, there was the there were the Korean couple, uh, Jin and Sun, they, you saw her side of the story first. And then I joined for the for his my first script that I co-wrote with Javier Guijo Barkswatch was his half of the story. And then you know, this is you know, very much in the spirit of what Damon and Carlton and JJ conceived. It, the, the, the story was not what you thought it was. The things you saw in her episode, you pay them off in this episode. Guess what? It's very different. That was that was really uh, the part of the tone set by Damon and Carlton, Carlton and JJ. And so uh, I was able to uh, pick up on that vibe and, and, and help and be a part of it. The way I describe it is I was fortunate enough to wear the same color uniform as some very talented people. So you, I'm puzzled because puzzled, please. It would, I understand when they film TV shows and movies to idiots like me, you would think that when they film them, they film them in the order of the script, but we understand that they don't, that there's, there's, an order in which you film based on a whole bunch of different factors right. and that the editor has to piece those together based on the script and they move, make them together to make a TV show or a movie. Right. Is it not a lot? I mean, I would imagine that the, for lack of a better word, the owner of the show. So Damon owned lost. It was his baby. Right. Well, figuratively, yeah, literally, it was owned by the Disney Corporation. That's but it was it was his idea, right? Like, so... uh, yeah, his and JJ. I mean, right. I don't want to get too off track here. The show was originally there. There was there was a version of the show, um, ABC. That there was a there was a pilot written for Loss. The head of ABC at the time uh, was not was not thrilled with it, so he turned to JJ. Can you do something with this? And that's and JJ drafted uh, Damon, and over a weekend they conceived Lost. When they conceived Lost, it wasn't just the story of a plane crashing on a beach. It was, I would imagine, and tell me if I'm wrong, it was an arc of a story of these characters and what happens to them in more than one episode, right? Yes. The The difference is the original pilot of Lost was, was the version that you, and you've alluded to this, is the version you would expect. And by the way, the writer of that pilot was pretty much doing what he was asked to do. I, from what I understand, don't quote me on this, but I, I think it was the ABC executive at the time said, I want to do a real life survivor. You know, survivor had become this mega hit right. in the reality world. And so what was delivered was a fictional version of a survivor story. Damon and JJ conceived the lost that you know, that they're... There's what the stuff that happens in, on the island. There's stuff that happens in the past. There are all these cool things. You know, th this is there are all these cool things that happen uh, on the island that will inform the past. And 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 these characters look for redemption. Jack versus Locke, the man of faith, man of science. They put all those pieces in place. And so coming out of the starting gate, they knew they had the roadmap of where the show was headed. So that's a, is that a pitch? Is that what that's called? What, like whatever Well, that yeah, is. but um, it, it was a little different. Like this one was, this show was born a little bit differently. The, the way most shows work is you go into the network and you pitch your idea. Uh, he's a, he's a centaur and he's a cop. It's called centaur cop, right? He signed, you know, it's set in ancient, uh, it's set in mythol in ancient Greece. And he, you know, and, and there's this character that, and you pitch it. And then, you know, the network uh, says, okay, we like it. 
uh, here's X dollars, go write a pilot script. Then, right. you know, then they read their 40 or 50 pilot scripts. And then of the eight, 50 or 40, 50, they order eight or 10. One of them is yours. They say, great, go film it. Right. Then they, you film so, it. Yeah. But, but lost was, it was born differently because at least in the, the version of loss, you know, because the head of ABC went to JJ, it wasn't a pitch. It was JJ. Can you do something with this? We like and the JJ, idea. Can you come clean this up for us? Or yeah. Or come up with something new. Really, right. which is what it was. And then Damon and, and Damon and JJ worked for a weekend and came up. So it was a, well, I don't know what the opposite of a pitch is. It's like, maybe <laughs> it's a bat. Like, you know, right. the, the ABC threw them the ball. And you know what? This is, a, this is actually yeah. a nice metaphor. ABC threw them a fastball in the bottom of the ninth with the, the pitch clock going. Right. And they, they uh, hit a, they hit a Mickey Mantle home run out of the stadium. Crossing so the stadium. So my question that took us down this very deep path was, I see that you worked on multiple episodes as a writer. Yes. But they were never in succession, pun intended. Yeah. They were, they, I would think that if I was going to hire Leonard Dick, this awesome TV writer, I'd say, okay, Leonard, write the first five episodes of season two, go. But instead you worked on, you know, a couple episodes here, a couple episodes there, but they were never next to each other. Yeah. Is that not disruptive? That is so counterintuitive to me. Um, it, 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 your instinct is, your instinct at wrong. a macro, no, <laughs> your, no, your instinct at a macro level is right. And, and the answer to that is those very isolated cases of the uh, kind of auteur showrunner creator, like, you know, Mike White, who created White Lotus, which, you know, Mike White did it all on his own, you know, short order. Yeah. Um, but the the and you know and Sorkin is a little bit in, in that end of the spectrum. David E. Kelly, but they really are anomalies. The 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 more the more um, granular answer is you're getting into the whole culture and mechanics of a TV show in a writer's room. So when you're doing 22 episodes, like one of the especially in broadcast television, this is something that a lot of people don't know. Uh, it, most broadcast TV shows. Uh, let's say a show that goes, let's take Grey's Anatomy or Lost or Good Wife, any of those shows, certainly are in September. The writers start work in June. You start filming in the middle of July. And once you start filming, you do not stop until you wrap in uh, early April. And so when episode six finishes filming on a Tuesday, episode seven starts filming on the Wednesday. So that train, you know, there's, I've always said that there's one taboo in television it's not drug problems or throwing a stapler at the head of a, of a production assistant. It's missing a delivery date because that, you know, the, the, the network has promised uh, the advertisers a new episode of NCIS or, you know, Big Bang Theory, whatever it is. And so because that train is moving so fast, you have you you break your stories, you write your stories with a group of writers. And so there's a rotation. So the, what would happen on Lost is we would break the stories as a group. And then whosoever turn it was in the rotation would go off and, and write the episode. Meanwhile, so while I'm out of the, the, the writer's room writing the episode, the, the remaining writers are sitting there working on the next episode, pitching that next episode. Meanwhile, Damon and Carlton are ping-ponging back and forth. They're in the room helping break the story or hear what the writers have come up with. They're going to editing. They are rewriting uh, the, the episode before mine, because you know the, the showrunner always takes the final pass. It is actually extremely difficult to run a TV show uh, on one's uh, on uh, on one's own. 
that is why you have uh, a, a, a large group of writers, you know, and and it's also I should add that it's a little bit different in the comedy world where there's a lot of group rewriting. But, um, you know, on House also, like as, as a as another example on House, we didn't run a writer's room. All the writer, it was more of a group of a group of individual writers. You worked on your episode on your own. David Shore came out of Law and Order. And so Law and Order, you know, the episodes are not serialized. So what happens in episode five has no bearing on what, what happens in episode six. So all the writers are working on their own episode. That's the way it worked on House, especially, you know, we did a lot of the medical research. So, you know, I would, if I got, I, I'd be working on my story, I'd, I'd walk in and say, hey, Joe, and I got, I'm stuck in act two. Can you sit with me for half an hour? So that's, and then it came time for my episode to be produced. I'd be involved in the casting and be on set. But uh, me, but what happened with my colleague down the hall, her episode, I have no idea what she's doing on her episode. So, but you, TV shows, particularly broadcast TV shows, network TV shows with, you know, 22 episodes are, are just mammoth operations. You need the, you need all those bodies. Hence, you know, you get the, he, I wrote episodes one, eight, and 21 of a season. But even though you wrote those random, you got credit to be the writer for those episodes. Correct. You had input on the others because you were there in the room for other pieces. That is correct. You, you know, it is, all, most shows run a writer's room. You, the phrase is, you break a story. Like you all work on the story together. You gotcha. beat it, you beat it out together. This, you know, this happens in act one, this happens in act Understood. two. And then, you know, then the showrunner will have the final say. So Robert King or Damon Lindelof, Carl Hughes, uh, Robert Michelle King, I should say, will come in and say, you know what, what if we move that into act two? Or, you know what, I, I want to change things up in act four. Or wait a second, there's an, there's something we want to accomplish by episode 10. So let's start laying the groundwork. You know, it, it at the end of the day, a TV show is a creative dictatorship. And it, it's really your job as a writer. It doesn't matter if you're the junior writer or the most senior writer with 25 years of experience. Your job is to help the showrunner realize his or her vision of the show. Okay. Question on Lost, obviously, at least in my mind. Um, did, when you worked on it, did everyone know where it was going? The answer is yes. Here, here, here is the the uh, answer uh, I give, and also, and I, I always give these answers knowing that Disney has lawyers and that uh, you know one day I, I I'm not going to ask you whether you liked it or not because that's no, no, no. irrelevant. I know, but they th there was there was a plan, and uh, and. The way like, at the beginning of season two, for example, and, and this is this is an analogy. I think it was I first heard it from Carlton Hughes, and I've always uh, I've employed it a lot because I think it's it's really uh, apt. Which is, we know we're driving from New York to Los Angeles, yeah. so we know what the season's going to be. We know what's going to happen in that season finale. We know by episode eight X is going to happen. By episode fifteen Y is going to happen. So we've got the big picture. We've got the macro. What we discover along the way is this week, do I want to take a highway or do I want to take a, a, a dirt road? Do I want to stop at the Grand Canyon or do I want to go to the Alamo? And that's where you get like some of like the, the more uh, focused character stories. Um, so there always was a plan. The plan um, was adjusted as time went on. There Part of it had to do with the way um, the negotiations went with the creatives and ABC that, you know, they, like one of the things um, that was really interesting early on is that Damon Carlton, JJ, 
did not want this to be a show that just ran forever and be entered. You know, in the, the, the financial model in broadcast in net, network television is you run the show until people stop watching. And so there are shows, I will not name the shows, but there are lots of shows that you love and I love them. By the time you get to six, season six or seven, you say, it feels like they've run out of stories. And they the answer the is they've run out of stories. It is really hard to keep coming up with stories. Like I, even even on a, on a high quality show like House, I was there for seasons three, four, and five, and I, I caught a, an episode in, in one of the last years. And there were certain there were certain diseases that would always be our red herrings, and and that's for that's for for medical reasons. There, there's certain things that are t hard to hide. And I noticed like in a later season, oh, they're actually making that the underlying disease. The audience doesn't know because the audience is along for a great uh, ride. It's still a, a compelling episode, but I know just because I was boots in there, oh, it, it must've been harder to come up with a new, a new disease. And so, so there always was a plan on loss and it was adjusted you know, as the show evolved, but to its credit, and this is, this is always to me a sign of a, of, of a really well-run show is you discover things along the way. So I'll give you an example from Good Wife, if I may uh, ping pong between shows. On Good Wife, uh, early in season two, we cast Michael J. Fox as an opposing lawyer. He was so good, and the cast liked working with him so much that we brought him back. And then we brought him back again. And we kept bringing him back to the point that by the time we got to, I think it was season five, he became the big bad. We made him the villain, the key antagonist for season five. And it was a great story. And that was something that was uh, all, all came from casting Michael J. Fox in a one-off. So shows, um, you know, shows discover things along the way. And it, what make, it's what makes them, it, it makes them textured, makes it interesting. And also for the people writing it and running it, it, it offers great surprises. But that also tells me that someone or someone's is paying attention to the audience as well. Yes, the and that is even uh, uh, more so the case in this day and age. Although with a big the aspect, social media, yeah. So um, one of the things about Lost, when when the history of television was written, I think Lost may be the first show uh, or one of the first shows where there were fan blogs, vocal fan blogs, and also. Damon would engage with them. And so it, it, Damon never necessarily, Damon never, you know, if someone said, I don't like character X, they didn't, you know, he wouldn't say, okay, we have to come in and say, okay, we got, we got to get rid of character X. But I do know in later years, there were a couple of characters who were not well received. And, uh, and by the way, this is only something I, I was off the show by this point, And I, this is only something that I've read in the popular press. There are a couple of characters who were background characters who were brought to, uh, to the foreground for a few, and it, the reception was so, um, there was such pushback from the audience that it, eventually they killed them. So that <laughs> is, so, so you, you, you'll hear a lot of showrunners say, I don't read the blog, or, you know, I don't read, I don't go on the internet. No, everyone does. It's like athletes, what, I don't read social media, yeah, it's bullshit. But here's what's changed. And it, it, it's actually somewhat symptomatic of, of the world we're in. In broadcast TV, which is to some extent, playing in real time. You write your episode, six weeks later, that thing's on TV. That's not the case in streaming. Streaming, because the whole financial model of streaming has changed, you know, you're writing all, you're, you're writing your eight, 10 episodes, 
you have all your scripts, then you go film them. And then 18 months later, Netflix, Hulu, or Amazon airs it. You're not getting the instantaneous feedback that you would get that you that we would get on Lost or Good Wife. We had something similar on Good Wife where we had a whole run with Kalinda and her husband and the audience didn't enjoy it as much and they mm-hmm. let us know. Yeah. And and there was a you know there was always a plan to for his departure and there was a little bit of maneuvering just maybe to make it a little earlier than planned. But um you don't so there we were getting real time feedback. You don't get that in streaming. Here's another thing you don't get in streaming. You don't get the discovery of the surprises like we had with a Michael J. Fox or some of the characters that, that, that showed up on, uh, on, on Lost. You, you cast a great actor and you don't know if the audience is responding or you don't have time to bring a Michael J. Fox back in three episodes later because those scripts are locked and you've got to shoot. That's what that's one of the, the, the things that streaming has done. So where'd it go? Um, I'm carefully going to jump ahead and then I'm going to come back. Please. What does a TV producer do? Uh, the uh, let, let me contra- contrast it with the movie business. The, the movie business, you know what the writer is, you know yep. what the director is, and, and the producer, when you see the producer credit, the producer, the best way to think of a producer in the movie business is he or she is the CEO of the operation, okay. making sure, you know, giving the director what he or she needs. Uh, you know, interfacing with the studio on on the budget and the like. Uh, a, a good a you know a, a multi um, a, a multi pronged producer like a Jerry Bruckheimer will all or or Scott Rudin will give will have creative input. Uh, you know, uh, at the other end of the spectrum, you may have somebody like uh, Woody Allen. I think we're still allowed to say his name. Woody Allen's producers were all just the business people. They had they they would not chime in at all on uh, on any of the scripts. So the producer. Is is really kind of the CEO or the COO to make sure the operation is running, and then of course also there might be the stars manager. Try okay, it, and that's because the movie business has historically been a star and director driven medium. Mm-hmm. Television, script television historically has been a writer driven medium. So we're actually uh, the the term of art is we are writer producers. So we write our episodes and we produce them. I write ep- my episode of uh, I write my episode of The Good Wife. I'm involved in the casting. Uh, you know, I, or, or let's say house. I'm involved in the casting. I'm on set. The actor doesn't understand the line. I the director. I I I conference with the director and explain something. Or the uh, the line producer comes and says, "We're not going to be able to make our day. We're going to have to make some adjustments here." So you are actually producing your episode. Um, and that's, uh, and so that's different from the movie business. The, the writer writes and then gives the script to the director and the director will, you know, might, might do a, a pass himself or herself in, in TV. The directors parachute in, direct the episode and move on. The writers are the keeper of the show. So you are writer and producer. Cause you produced a hell of a lot more of the shows that you've mentioned than you did write. Well, it's a little, it, this is a, a little bit misleading because, you know, there, there's a joke in, in my industry that it's easier to give titles than money. Right. Um, and so the way it works is when you watch the credits of a TV show and you're seeing all these, you know, producer, co-producers, executive producer, co-executive producer, you're saying, who the hell are all these people? Right. Most of those people are writers. It's the way, it's the, it's the counterpart to 
pre, uh, vice president, senior vice president, executive vice president, gotcha. right? Or as one of my more cynical friends says, Honda Civic, Honda Accord, gotcha. Lexus, Porsche, <laughs> Tesla. So most of those are the writers of the show. There are also some non-writing executive producers. That's be, that's become a big thing now, because especially as the movie business is contracted, you get a lot more producer producer types in television finding material, finding a writer. But most of those producer credits you're you're seeing are the writers of the show. Gotcha. It's the Thank staff. You. That's very helpful. Okay. So you go from Lost to House. Yes. I liked Lost. I yes. loved House. He, he he was fantastic. And I and will I, add, very importantly, created by David Shore from London, Ontario. So can Another, I just tell you that my son was once ill in the hospital here in Seattle. Uh, he was very sick. Uh, right, he had COVID before there was COVID, basically. And and as we often do, we we turn to comedy in times of great stress. And they were about to put him on a ventilator, uh, and he was in the ICU. And they were about to put him on a ventilator for a week, where he thankfully he recovered. You've talked to him because he produces this broadcast, this podcast. And the doctor was the head of the ICU, looked at me and she goes, we're still really trying to figure out what it is. And I said to her, well, I know one thing that it isn't. And she said, what? I said, well, I know it's not Cushing's disease. <laughs> and she said, how do you know that? And I said, well, I used to watch House. And she started laughing. She goes, I'm glad to know that you have your sense of humor about you. That's, that's <laughs> good for you. And it was just because in House, it was always Cushing's disease until it wasn't. I couldn't yeah. tell you what the hell Cushing's disease was, but yeah. That was really a flipping fantastic television show. Yeah. Was it was it that much fun to work on? Like part of what I always worry about is that the actors aren't as cool as the characters they portray, if you know what I mean. Okay. Well, uh, I will I, I can answer the question with it. it it was with an unequivocal yes that it was the show was a, a, a really fun. It was also extremely hard. So, so first of all, uh, just to take a, a few steps back, how, how House was uh, the creation of David Shore. And the origin of that sh show was it was pitched uh, not by David, but I think it was Paul Adonazio and Katie Jacobs as medical CSI. Yeah. Uh, that's all it was, medical mysteries. And it was David who created the House character. David was a big Sherlock Holmes fan and uh, was inspired by Sherlock Holmes. I think, by the way, House... Holmes, Wilson, Watson, uh -huh. uh, you know how, and so and, and and Hugh Laurie. The show was not developed for Hugh Laurie. Hugh Laurie auditioned for the show, uh, and of course he became. He, I think the network wanted Patrick Dempsey, and he right. wasn't available, and and they ended up with Hugh Laurie. And of course, you can't imagine that show without without Hugh. So, answer number one: the show is really fun. Answer number two: the show is really hard. Because the way it works on most medical shows is the writers come up with a story. And then I've heard this like on some of the more prominent medical shows, the writers will literally write in their scripts, medical, 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 <laughs> medical, and then ha hand it off to the doctors, right. the doctor consultants. On our show, we researched our medical stories. We wrote the dialogue. I mean, we had consultants and our consultants would review it, but I'm the one who said, would write his blood cell count is 14. He's got hemochromatosis. Go do... Uh, an MRI, right? And, you know, and I will admit, most of the time, I had no idea what I was writing. I knew where I wanted to get to, and I knew that in that MRI scene, someone would confess 
that they that they killed uh, Jimmy Hoffa. But I, I needed the medical uh, through line uh, and I would research it and write it. And that was really hard. The actors were fantastic. Hugh Laurie was uh, was, first of all, insanely talented. He was you forget that he's British. That's what. So he's doing it in an American accent. He's got these quarter page chunks of dialogue with all this medical jargon. He's doing it while he's walking with the cane and he's popping, uh, popping the Vicodin. And it was interesting to watch because some of the younger actors would get intimidated by him, not because of his personality, because he was a real gentleman, but because of how well prepared he was. And, and, all, and he would also, he was, just to show you what a gentleman he was, you know, between takes, he would, you know, he'd be preparing for the next scene and he would say, would it be okay if I said the line this way instead of that way? What actor does that? He was right. such a gentleman. He was an absolute pleasure. So I'm going to skip the mentalist. I, I love the mentalist as well. I found it very similar. The thing I will say just for a second on House is, and I told you, I watch everything. Yeah. As someone, as I just told you, who's been through the process, unfortunately, as a patient or a father of a patient, I've always compared the medical system to a bit of a flow chart and they're constantly if then this this then this yes. if not then that yes and that's what that show felt like yeah it well, really what... it really felt like that that's the experience it feels like they really don't know with all due respect but they're they're looking at symptoms and they're trying to figure out what they know from their past it could be and if it works great if not back to the drawing board well yes and and the way house would the show would spin it is again you have real medicine the, the actual mechanics of real medicine are are pretty straightforward and, and arguably boring it's blood tests and, and and mris and you're making a tv show you want to make it dramatic you know you want find a way for a house to stick a patient in a vat full of piranhas to prove that they have vasculitis um you know one of my colleagues larry Kaplow, who won a writers guild award um for it was called like a live autopsy really had he really thought almost like house he was he was the one who wrote he wrote one where the teaser was a scrotum exploding and so you know you're, you're looking for those one in a million one in a million opportunities and so what house would do and i learned this early first of all in medicine here's one of the things i learned you're not testing to confirm you're testing to eliminate right that's well, i that and you think about i think about some of the stuff i've done i've gone through over the years you know, he runs a blood test on this blood test. Yeah, that's, they're trying to eliminate stuff rather than confirm it. But the other, the big thing about House, the character is that, and I learned this early on when I was working on my first script, is House doesn't test, he treats. Most doctors wouldn't do that. But what you wanted to do is you wanted to trigger, you know, go test, you know, go do an MRI. And while he's in the MRI, he has a, you know, he's throwing up blood. So the MRI triggered the throwing up of the blood, but the, the throwing up the blood isn't the ailment that you were doing the MRI for. Right. You wanted to move the story forward. And so really, and so it was, again, House doesn't test, he treats. And, and you know, because also you, you wanted House to figure out by minute, uh, minute 59, not minute one, right. uh, as, it, as could happen in real life. So let's pivot quickly to the good way. That was just, so it took the legal procedural to so many different places. Um, first and foremost, you had, you had a woman playing the lead role. 
uh, opened with, you know, someone who who found out her husband was cheating on her, uh, brought her back to the world. Yes, I watched. You should, if you're not listening, if you're only watch, only listening and watching, Leonard's got a big smile on his face. <laughs> Had you know, main characters dying out of nowhere, a, a who shot Jr. moment in the middle of the show, yeah. um, and then the show. I'm making air quotes. Ended to be reborn on a streaming service as something completely different. And I will say, so you don't have to, came back pretty damn good on streaming show and then ended, in, in my opinion anyways, horrifically. Did not love the, the last season of uh, The Good Fight. But that was, you know, LA Law, Boston Legal. Like, I, I thought it was as good as any other legal procedural out there. And mostly because the cast was obviously the writing has to be good. The cast is only as good as the writing is, yeah. but the cast was so damn good on that show. Yeah, it, the, the cast was stellar, and and the tone was set by Juliana Marley's. I, I said, I always said, you she could read the back of a cereal box and, and make it interesting. And the supporting cast was 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 great. And our guest cast, as I said, they, one of the things that happened on on The Good Wife is we once the show started to get some success is we were attracting all these actors who wanted to be on the show and we we developed a reputation of attracting actors who had uh problematic reputations and they would come and they would behave and they and the, when you have a cast of Juliana Margulies, Chris Noth, Christine Baranski, uh Matt Zucri uh you know they, 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 you're playing it's murderer's row you're playing with the 27 yankees and so these actors some of them you know again who had some maybe uh prickly reputations would come and love it and behave and we would bring them back again because their performances were so good uh and, and a and, lot of them sorry a lot of them made very good judges yes the and that's <laughs> another thing like and that's one of the things that robert michelle came up with which was the judge with the judge with a personality. I will take I will take credit for one judge. There was one judge who was actually that I pitched was actually based on my mother. And we were doing a case. Robert and Michelle love cases about technology uh, yeah. and how technology changes our daily lives and all the Chum ethical hum. issues. Come home, yeah, all the ethical issues around it. And we did this one, this one uh, episode. I think it was in season four. I think it was called Two Girls One Code about these two. Uh, university students who would come up with a code, and the and the university claimed ownership of it. It was a it was a great civil case about technology about technology. Um, and what we did was, and so the judge was this old guy played by Dominic Cianese, who was a very famously Junior Soprano, and then Johnny Ola in The Godfather. Yeah. And you get the old doddering judge, but the surprises. This guy is completely up to date on technology. That was my mother. My mother was uh -huh. so tech savvy. Right. I had pro I had problems. I would call her. Right. And so, but that I was able to pitch that kind of judge because Robert and Michelle had made our judges uh, you know, real people with quirks and uh, idiosyncrasies, and that was one of the fun things. With the show. And so, yeah, we were able to draw a lot of really talented actors playing our judges. So, here's what I don't understand. Or I understand it, but I don't like it. <laughs> and that is, this thing comes along called COVID. You may have heard of it. I have. And it's still here, by the way. It's still here. No, not that's forget. not what that, that's not what Biden told us. But we're not going to go there. Um, 
it shuts down the theaters. We're all stuck at home. What was it called? Tiger King. God yes. help us. We all still, but we lived for a short period in the greatest opportunity age of television ever. All we were doing was watching content on the idiot box, so to speak, right? Yes. We weren't going to movie theaters. Correct. We're, like we all hated cable, but we were paying for Hulu, HBO, Showtime, Netflix, Disney Plus. Like our streaming bill was suddenly higher than our cable bill. Yes. Like we were totally encapsulated into watching everything. Uh, we we liked the idea that we could not just watch everything, but we could watch it on our time. TiVo came and gone, and yet we're suddenly watching things, we're binging things to all hours of the night. We're watching on planes if we're traveling. Um, so it is the, in my opinion, the greatest time ever for television. Yes. And yet, and yet, we're on strike. Correct. That is... It really is like, you know, the hand, but, you know, biting the hand that feeds you, so to speak. And I could not, I, I've, I've watched and I've listened to podcasts and people talking about the writers getting screwed and, and yes. you're, you're, you've spent a good chunk of your day today. I know on the picket lines. Yes. And, and I've heard part of the answers. I'm rambling here. I understand, but listener will, will, will know that I do that, but my understanding is that they try they've tried to take advantage of you that they they've condensed the working sessions of writers into such that you don't get fair wage for the amount of time that you work they're no longer having writers on set so you're really just writing in these rooms you don't get involved in the production side the cycles are short the average writer is now only working maybe 26 weeks if they're lucky you know, the amount of time and wages is ridiculous. And so I heard all of that. And I was like, well, you know, just because consumer behavior has changed, we're consuming more. So writers should be paying, be, <clears throat> should be getting paid more. So that's one argument that I heard. Pro yeah. writer, I'm on it. Then I heard, excuse me, Scott Galloway the other day. I'm not sure if you know who that is. Oh, yeah. He, I listened to him religiously. I haven't heard the last episode, though. So what he said was... And this is why I wanted, one of the reasons I was really anxious to talk to you was there's three things going on that are, are going to be the death knell of the writer. So the first one is that a bulk of the money going to writers is for the late night TV shows. And with all due respect to Jimmy Kimmel and his brothers and sisters, nobody watches those anymore. So the death of late night TV has eradicated the need for like nobody notices right now. Because nobody, who cares that Kimball's not on anymore? Right. So that's one. Two, it's really inexpensive to produce reality TV. We watched uh, Survivor last night. Cost peanuts to make it. Yep. You don't need writers for it. And the other thing that's dominating TV right now, continually, the top 100 TV show ratings-wise right now are sports. And right. while you have to pay stupid fees, you don't need writers for that either. Right. And then the third thing is that TikTok currently has 800,000 people creating content for free, but they don't have to pay writers for that either. And that for those reasons, people like you that used to write for TV are really in for a long, hard, difficult battle. 
and the networks and the streamers know that. And this is going to go on for a long time and you guys are going to take it on the chin. Okay, those are all valid points. And there are some that I do disagree with. And again, these are a lot of this is opinion. Some of this is based on a, a empirical evidence. But let me let me just uh, let me hopscotch a little bit about, around some of the points you raise, and also Scott Galloway. First of all, reality television has been around now, as we know it, for twenty five years. It began with Survivor, so it's it, it's not as if everyone's going to wake up today tomorrow and say, "Oh my God, I need to watch a new reality show." I, it's there. The, I think the, it's garbage. By the one way, one of the go things on. streaming has done is streaming has streaming is effectively the public library. It's it's book it shows sitting on a shelf, and so it's not as if the shows haven't been there. If you don't love reality television, you're not going to start watching reality television. If you love the Kardashians, you're gonna you're gonna watch whatever's coming next. So uh, that curve, I think, it, it, it has flattened out. Same with sports. And by the way, sports ratings uh, are also declining. Uh, you know, I mean, the NFL is, is a unique animal. But the other sports, uh, even with the advent of the pitch clock in baseball, you know, it, it's it's the great it's the great uh, uh, Chris Rock line I think about baseball like the a baseball crowd is a Trump rally, meaning it's all older white men. <laughs> but but that like ba baseball ha that's flattened out. Uh, my sport hockey still a minuscule audience. Sports is there. Reality is there. Um, Squid Game, Bridgerton. You put those on the air and you're getting like, these astronomical numbers. For whatever reason, I am not a psychologist. I, I I don't want to sound precious, but people love scripted shows. They love their characters. They love the, the, the journey. Su they love, succession. They love the rights. Succession, I, I am the only person in my household who doesn't watch Succession. And I am left out at the dinner table. Everybody loves it. It, 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 it is referenced in uh, out in in culture. Politicians reference it. People are using it, and I and I don't know that show is a hit. People love television. This has been going on for you know, like for what sixty years, seventy years. Television. So there is I, I, again. I don't want to sound precious. I don't want it to sound uh, like I'm in the diamond business and I'm offering you a a, a perfect diamond, but you. People want to sit on a couch or ride on a plane and they want to watch all the episodes of Breaking Bad. And so there's going to come a point. Uh, it's interesting. Also, you also have the, the phenomenon of this is happening right on the cusp of summer. Summer viewership do drops in, in all media. But once we get back into the rhythms of the year, people are going to start to miss their show. People are going to miss the shows they love. Um, so th there, so, so there's, there's, there's that factor that people love script television. Remember, this is not the first strike. And yes, I, I don't deny that there are other options. Certainly, uh, the internet, social media, uh, you know, TikTok. It's not like the, it's not like the old, old, old days where you had ABC, CBS, NBC, and you know, the writers went on strike in 1988 and there were, there was nothing to watch. People still want their shows. And in fact, uh, you know, people are, are 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 consuming more. They're also consuming shows from other countries, but they're still watching. No one is. They're not watching reality shows from from Poland and Spain. They're watching Money Heist. They're, they're watching, watching Fauda. Movies. Right. They want their scripted shows. There's something about watching a a well executed scripted TV show with characters you love that keep you on the edge of your seat. 
And, and that I think is going to continue. So that is what is working in our favor. And here's another thing, if you want to get into the business of it, this is another thing where I don't know when we know this negotiation, we know the strike is going to end. There's going to be a deal. I don't know when, I don't know what it's going to look like. I'm not on the negotiating committee or in the, on the guild board uh, or on the other side. I don't know. We don't know when it's going to end, but it's going to end. And here is the one thing working in our favor is the streaming mall. If you believe that streaming is the tail wagging the dog streaming. And, and now I'm going to sound like Scott Galloway. And I wish I could sound like Scott Galloway. Streaming is driven by subscriptions. Subscriptions are driven by new. How? Just think about your own TV view. And I'm going to completely out, out you, Jonah, and your family. You probably say, we've got to get through all the episodes of X because I want to, I want to cancel my, my subscription this month. And by the way, we've done like, I, I was, I, I don't want to name the streaming service, but I said to my wife, we have two more episodes left. We've got to watch it by tomorrow because our 30 day trial is going to end. That is how everyone's watching. Everybody wants to cancel their, their subscription. You need to give them something and it's not going to be uh, love bachelor Island version 74. You don't have to convince me. As I said, I watch <laughs> everything. To me, I saw Tom Hanks being interviewed the other day. Yes. And this this to me... when Mr. I when, Mr. Tom Hanks, remember. Mr. Tom Hanks. Sure. <laughs> he will always be the guy from Splash, whatever his character was in Splash. Alan Bauer. Know. There you go. <laughs> so I saw him interviewed, and this really struck home to me with what's going on with the writers today. Because when I heard that the streaming services don't allow writers on the sets of shows. I was like, that's, I don't know anything, but that's just seems asinine to me. They do. It's, it's usually what they've done is without getting too much into the weeds here is the, the, the show, the showrunner stays on and maybe one senior writer, but the, the, the writer, the, whoever wrote episode four, who knows that episode intimately, he or she is not on set. She's not participating in that. And then the showrunner, you know, who's got who's got to do rewrites and is now pretty much all by himself or herself. And and then of course it's it ends up costing money because you got to correct things and reshoot things. And so it long term and you're also you're not developing a bench. Uh, that's another thing. It, it is short sighted. If you think you know, these companies are supposed to place a premium on on human resources and developing your assets, your human assets, they're not doing that at all. So this isn't the best example, but. You're a writer. Go with me. Because what he said to me tells the story and it makes the most sense. He was telling the story of when they were doing Sleepless in Seattle. And he said that the night before they were shooting the scene where Jonah was giving Tom Hanks's character shit for not responding to these women who wanted to date him that Jonah was setting him up for. And Tom Hanks said to Nora Ephron, the way you've written this, there's not a man on the planet that would, would respond the way you've written it. It just wouldn't happen. You've written this for a woman. No guy sounds the way you've written this. So she said to him, well, you tell me, what would it sound like? And he told her. And when he showed up to shoot it the next morning, it had been completely rewritten. And that's what is in the movie. It's great. That's a great story. And if these geniuses are so bloody cheap that they can't see that, then they've completely missed the boat because 
they need people like you to be there on the set. They just, I'm an idiot and I know nothing, yeah. but you need someone to see what's going on on the set between the characters and to get that kind of feedback, to pivot as things are happening, to see the thing, something's working or it's not working or, you know, the camaraderie's off or the words are off or something's not working. Like it just, that to me seems very natural. And if you can't find it in your budget to pay people to be there, you've completely missed the boat. Well, I think you have very um, compellingly identified a larger issue and it really points to what is happening with the strike, which is in strikes past, uh, you know, we, we deal, we're, we're across the table from the AMPTP, which is a, a, the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers. It's, it's an alliance of your major Hollywood studios, uh, of which there are now there are eight. And in years past, so, so you're negotiating with, with the alliance lawyers, but you're always lurking in the background where people like Peter Chernin, uh, Bob Daly and Terry Samuel at Warner Brothers, Les Moonves, TBS, People who grew up in our system, who read scripts, who watched cuts, who courted stars, who were, for lack of a better term, Hollywood people. Now, the people we are across the table from did not grow up in this system. Re, uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, Ted Sarandos, Jeff Bezos, Tim Cook. Um, uh, who, who's the fourth one I'm thinking of? Um, oh, uh, David Zaslov, who's a reality uh, came out of the reality world. They they come from a different world and they operate by a different calculus. Their companies operate by a different calculus. And I don't say this as a knock. I say this objectively. It's an academic. That's point. a reality. Yeah. And so their whatever their whatever their 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 figurative and, and literal Excel spreadsheets uh, determine and what their their management algorithms determine does not reflect. Uh, the way the old media companies work. And it's one of the interesting divisions. You see, in this one, in this negotiation right now, it's the streamers that are the tail wagging the dog. In fact, there have been several articles about this, that this is now being called the Netflix strike. And that Netflix has become the, the face of the bad guy. They are the villain. In fact, if you look at the picketing, we picket at eight locations in Los Angeles, most of the action is at the Netflix headquarters. Because and so and, because, and so sorry. Go please. ahead. No, no, no. You finish. I'll I'll, I'll say, hold my thought. So it's not being driven by CBS. It's not being driven by NBC Universal uh, or Disney the way it was in the old days. It's the, 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 all those new practices that are in place now. Some of the some of the ones that you uh, very um, concisely and accurately described were put in place by the streaming companies, and so the legacy media companies. You know, your Paramount slash CBS, NBC Universal, Disney, Warner, et cetera, they are following the lead of the streaming companies. And yet they still have broadcast channels. They, they still need the old way. And there's an argument that's been made by uh, several people, one of whom is John Wells, who, who is the showrunner on ER, who used to be the head of the Writers Guild and, and, uh, and uh, he ran the negotiating committee. And he, he's one of the most impressive people you, you'll ever meet. But what John Wells very, um, uh, very eloquently lays out is how the practices that we are advocating for, the proposals we are making actually make business sense 
for these companies, short term and long term. There, no one denies viewing has changed. TV, we're not going back to the days of 22 episodes a year on, on a broadcast network. Broadcast TV has its own challenges, both creative and, and business. We, everyone knows the world has changed, but the system of making the shows, it worked for 50, 60 years. That system gave you Cheers, CSI, NYPD Blue, Friends, the list goes on and it made those companies billions of dollars, not just in revenue, in profits. And that came out of the way the shows were made. And so what we're trying to do is help educate these streaming companies that there is a, you can take a version of that model because the model works. The model is creatively um, creatively successful and also financially successful. We can give you your streaming version you know, on a business level of a friends, of a CSI, whatever that is lost. And that's what we're, that is what we're advocating for is to, is to do a version of uh, taking the, the things that worked and, 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 and give that to them because that is what's going to make their show successful. You know, I, I, I can't tell you how many um, shows I've heard of uh, in, in the streaming world that have blown up and then they go, whether it's an inexperienced person or the showrunner's overwhelmed. I have a writer friend, I'm sorry, I have a friend who's a producing director. He, his, his whole business now is that the, they call him, we're in trouble, can you fix the show? And they fly him out to whatever location they're shooting in. He takes over the production uh, and, 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 and he fixes it. But the, and he says, this stuff should have been fixed in the writer's room. It could have been fixed in the writer's room if the showrunner had had more help. And it's basic. My understanding is, correct me if I'm wrong, basic concept is companies like Netflix had monstrous content budgets. And somebody looked up and said, you're spending what on content? Because you're not making that in revenue to the point where I don't know what the, I heard some crazy number and it might've been from Galloway, what they're spending per sub on content. Yeah. And it was way out of whack. Yeah. So someone probably a bean counter said, you need to whack that number on content. And how do you whack that number while not reducing the amount of content that you bring in? So where do yeah. you do? You do what every company does. You go after the worker. Yeah. I mean, and isn't I think, that, isn't that what this is? Uh, to some extent, I, I'm going to, I'm going to say something that, may actually sound sympathetic is not the right word but i as i you know as i we talked about my my own background i uh, i i did go to business school i did at, at, at a small little business school that a few people <laughs> think is prestigious and so i i do uh, i'm able to read the business section of the new york times or, or read the wall street journal and understand it uh -huh. and so what there are a couple of watershed events watershed event number one was about a year ago when Netflix reported that their that they were expecting their subscriber numbers to fall, yeah. which was unheard of. Because what in the last couple of years, and to your point, Jonah, this was actually, I think, really amplified by COVID, the fact that we were all sitting home, it was an arms race. It was market share. It was draw, you know, it was, it was just throw as much content as possible to draw viewers. Viewers are going to be drawn by the content. And then, so watershed event number one was Netflix realizing or, or expecting their subscriber numbers to fall. And I think they may not have been, when they actually reported it at the end of that quarter, it wasn't as bad 
as they thought it would be. And then, um, uh, then the next watershed event happened uh, after all the, the management uh, nuttiness at Disney when, when Chapek got pushed out and Iger came back and Nelson Peltz, the corporate raider, was pressuring Disney. Disney was spending on content. They spent a, a lot of money to launch their streaming service. And now, led by Nelson Peltz, they wanted to see profitability. So Wall Street, we, we are these are still public corporations. They still have shareholders. They wanted to see profitability. And so that led to uh, the, this big retrenchment. And so you cut the number of shows, you know, you cut your costs. And again, there, there's almost something agnostic about it. It's not like we're trying to fuck the writers. It's they're going through their Excel spreadsheets and the writers are just line 3804.2. And it's a big run. It's a big number. Yeah. And they, and, and but they, to them, it's again, this is just my own read. It's not like they're saying they're not rubbing their hands and saying, let's fuck the writers. It's we have to, we have to rein in line item 38.04.2, just like 3804.3. Right. But what we're trying to, but, but first of all, they're making a colossal mistake. And also we're not going to let you fuck with line 3804.3 because uh, I have to, I have to put a roof over my kid's head. I've got to put food on the table. But again, it's this point that, 30, line 3804.2 actually is what's making your show successful. So there's, there's a, a little bit of our, I don't know if you want to call it education, uh, educating them, but it's, it's making them realize that, again, we understand the market has changed. Viewing habits have changed. Um, but the way the, show is, the way the shows are made is important. It leads to the success of the shows. If you want to drop, if you want people to, uh, to to subscribe to your streaming service, you need shows they're going to watch. If you want shows they're going to watch, you need to have a version of some of the proposals that were that were uh, requesting. It's it's disheartening because the alternative, I see it. The I went to go see a movie the other day. Yes, I'm the one. Um, <laughs> I told you I watch everything. Every single preview yeah. was for a superhero movie. It was well, so depressing. That is that is a big uh, shift in the the movie business that that's been going on for several years, and it was both exacerbated and accelerated by COVID. The movie studios in this day and age are pretty much about the tentpole picture. That right. that that mid level. Uh, when I say level, I'm talking about budget, romantic comedy with say Reese Witherspoon and Paul Rudd. The, those days are gone. That that goes. That will show up on, on on streaming. And by the way, to your point about the increase, uh, like the golden age of, of, of TV, peak TV, whatever you want to call it, there's been a migration of, of in, some incredible talent, both in front of the camera, and behind the camera, to television, precisely because uh, the movie business ha has has contracted. I always give the example of Nicole Kidman. Nicole Kidman went from movie star Nicole Kidman to TV star Nicole Kidman. She's been in several successful series. She has been whoever, whether it's her, I'm sure it's her and her her representatives have very strategically and smartly carved out a a, a presence in the television world for her. The I think the last time I, I I I you know it's interesting what you said. We my wife and I said let's go to the theater. We haven't been to the theater in eight, I think the last movie we saw was Top Gun, which by the way loved it. So we haven't been and, to the and, and and you have to see it in the theater. But go on. Yeah. Anyway, so the other night, my wife said, "Let's go to the movies." And we looked and said, "What's playing?" Oh, let's go see Air. Love it's gotten good Fantastic. reviews. Love the subject matter. And I'm not kidding you. We were 
getting ready. We were getting dressed to leave. My daughter happened to be at the house and said, oh, you know, it's on Amazon. Right. And and we uh, it's funny. My wife said, I actually feel bad for the movie theater. Exactly. Right? There was there was 30 bucks that they lost. And we ended up put, staying in our sweatpants, watching the movie, enjoying it thoroughly. But that's a, that's a shift. And so, uh, you know, Air is the kind of movie I don't know how it did in the in, in, in the theaters, but that movie uh, you know, statistically, most of the movies like that are not going to be in the theaters. It's going to be Spider-Man, the, the 17th Spider-Man, the 43rd X-Men, and uh, whoever's left in the Marvel Universe. So, For better or worse, by the way, because those so, movies are good and they draw fans. So I saw it in uh, I saw it in the theater before it hit before it hit Prime. Yeah. It did uh, 14 million its opening weekend. I'm just looking it up for you. Okay. Did 52 million gross. Okay. Worldwide, it did. Uh, oh, here we go. 90 million worldwide. Yeah. I don't know what it costs to make it, but yeah. yeah, I mean, that's the problem, right? Is that yeah. I understand moving it over after a month, but why'd you move it over so damn quick? Uh, Amazon actually might've been the studio. I don't know who the studio was. And th then you're getting to all the, the nitty gritty of the business parts. Like what was Ben Affleck's salary? Right. What was Matt Damon's salary? Were they working for scale? Did they take their full salary? Did they waive their points? Um, but this, but, but the movie business, um, I mean, it's interesting the, with the strike, you hear mostly about the, the issues around television writers. I got news for you. The movie writers, screenwriters have a whole other set of issues and they are just as valid uh, and, and as serious as, as the writer, as the issues for TV writers. Uh, and so the, it, it's, this is an industry, every industry is going through upheaval. There's, there's no denying that. And it's funny, I was, I was with my uh, college slash university roommates right before COVID we had a little mini reunion weekend with uh, the, our group and our sister group. Uh, it was really lovely. Uh, but one of the themes I was, it really surprised me and it probably shouldn't have surprised me was everybody was talking about the upheaval in, in their industry and what they do. Medicine, finance. One of my college roommates, is, is, it works at, he's one of the fund managers of Fidelity. Education, lobbying, everybody to a man and a woman was going on uh, about the upheaval and the changes, you know, cultural changes, technology changes, you know, and, and so it, on the one hand, I thought, this is great. I'm not an island. I'm glad everybody's going through the same uh, distress I am. The difference in my industry is it's everybody knows my industry. Everybody reads about it on the front page of the LA Times, the Seattle Post, whatever it is. So, and everybody is, you're part of the things that are causing me heartburn because of the way you watch. And so that is, that, that is the difference. But we are all living in this time of upheaval and COVID is, uh, was both a, an accelerant and a metaphor for the times we're living in. And we're trying to adjust and we're, we're trying to adjust in a way that we hope is equitable uh, and, and a way that we can sustain a career and make a living while also making these companies money. We're not naive about that. Do you have time for two quick questions? I'm here. I got nothing. I'm here until 9 a.m. tomorrow when I'm back on the, the picket line. <laughs> All right. So two, so two quick questions. I think, a, I think a hard one and an easy one. Okay. The hard one. 
before the strike came, I think this would have been an easier question, but here we are. I think part of the problem that network television has suffered so much recently at the hands of streaming. And before that, whoever changed the name from HBO Max to now Max should be shot, but that's a discussion <laughs> for the next time you visit. But is lack of adult content on network TV, nudity, language, etc. Ever is a very long time. Do you think that'll ever change on network TV? Uh, I am no expert. I would guess that the answer is no, it won't change. First of all, let, let me let me just pause for a second and say, uh, I want to say something in defense of network TV, which is even though streaming is you know, streaming shows are the shiny object, you know, your Bridgertons, your Squid Games, etc. The the shows on, on net, network TV are, are are still very high quality. Obviously, a lot of them are not high quality, and most shows get canceled. But Grey's Anatomy has run for twenty years. Yeah. NCIS has run for twenty. It, it may not be your cup of tea, but a show like NCIS has a loyal audience. It's a well done show. the The stories are great. The characters are compelling. People keep tuning in. Uh, Network TV has given us recently. This is us. It's given us the Good Doctor. Um, those the the FBI, um, the FBI franchise on uh, on on CBS again. Well done shows. Hundred percent. Well written. And so network TV, and yet network TV still is producing or offering very good shows. Um, however, network TV has to operate within parameters, and the parameters you know, they are public airwaves. They are regulated by the FCC. So yes. No swearing, no nudity, no no cigarettes, and of course you have the other thing um, about uh, when I wrote uh, I wrote an episode of The Good Wife about head injuries in hockey, and you know Robert Michelle King were always keen on making things authentic. They wanted the audiences are smart; they can see through like the fake names. So we 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 were told by CBS Legal that you not only can you not say the NHL, you have to come up with a fictional name and you have to say it something like two times in the first three minutes of the, whatever it was like six times we have to say, so we came up with this like the allied professional hockey league that, 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 right. And so if you're a hockey aficionado, like you and I, as you and I are, it, okay. You know, it's the NHL without being the NFL and it sounds goofy, but that's, that's network TV. Those are the parameters you're operating uh, within and the public airwaves belong to the public. And so the, the counter argument is we, this is what we offer or these are the kind of shows, if you want adult, you can go watch on streaming. And also, uh, this is why the legacy companies, the same company that owns CBS, owns Paramount Plus. The same company that owns NBC owns Peacock. The legacy companies are trying, like, really they are, they are redirecting their resources to streaming. Even they see streaming as the future. And I, another, you know, I talked about um, a watershed event of, of, of you know, the Netflix um, with that subscriber uh, report that anticipated report. Another watershed uh, event in the history of the entertainment business, and this is something, Jonah, you actually indirectly alluded to when you were talking about reality and sports, is when Rupert Murdoch sold Fox, the Fox Studio, to Disney. What did he keep? He kept the Fox Network, Fox News, and the newspapers. He got rid of everything. He got rid of 
20th Century Fox Film Studio, 20th Century Fox TV Studio, the studio of The Simpsons. He got rid of FX, he got rid of all, the, but he kept the Fox network. And so one of the questions, and I've actually sold a couple of pilots to Fox in the last couple of years, and they're terrific people. But one of the questions the creatives ask is, what is Fox? What is Fox going to be? What is Rupert going to do with Fox? And maybe he is thinking of stepping back from scripted. You know, you've got Family Guy, Simpsons, you know, they've been there forever. The, the 911 shows are terrific. They're, you know, they're, they're at the, they're mm -hmm. getting on a little bit. Are they going to keep producing scripted shows or are they just going to do reality and sports? So that speaks to your question of, with, you know, was it a whence or whether mm. network television? All right. Now the easy one. Okay. To, to finish us off. What's great that you're watching right now? Uh, my, I am still in COVID watching mode. And so uh, I, I would categorize uh, two types of shows. Show number, show type number one or one is the show that goes down easy. I, 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 I can't watch teens cutting themselves as good as the shows are. I've been watching. Um, so in that category, only murders in the building, Cobra Kai, love it. I've also been watching the shows out of Europe. Uh, I love Call My Agent. I love Money Heist. I really enjoy Squid Game. And the, the, the I, I just discovered Fauda. All these Fantastic. years later, I love Fauda. It is so damn good. So th th those are the, the shows, I'm, and they're just. The, and by the way, as a creator here, I am learning from some of those European shows. They do things differently. It's been uh, it's been a pleasure to watch. So I just finished The Diplomat with Carrie Russell. That's on our list. It's fantastic. She is good, yeah. fantastic. By the way, created by, uh, I think it's Deborah Kahn, who came out of West Wing. She came huh. out of broadcast television. Trained, written, yeah, I, I trained, uh, grew up in that system. And here she is delivering a, a, uh, a premier streaming show. Yeah, it's terrific. And there's a new version of um, Fauda. Sorry. There's a new show from the makers of Fauda called Something in Berlin on Showtime that I started last night. It's very good. I'll have to watch that, yeah. Leonard, I'm a little bit behind. <laughs> I uh, really appreciate you taking some time. This has been fantastic. Uh, you've seen his work all over network TV. I'm sure we will see it again once he solves the strike and gets off the picket line. And uh, we can't wait to have you back again once that is. And you can tell us what you're working on next because we're sure to love it. Thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. It was really fun. Awesome. Thank you for listening to today's episode in the press row. As always, if you want to appear as a guest or if you want to advertise or just drop me a line, you can shoot me an email at Jonah at YYZsportsmedia.com, at Twitter at YYZsportsmedia. My DMs are always open. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.